Christos Anesti. You know what that means? It means give me something on the screen. <laughs> Doesn't mean that. that. That movie, by the way, is in theaters now here over in uh, uh, the cinema over on Division Street. So, and it's going to be there. I don't know how long it's going to be there, but you got to see it. And it's powerful. And I, I haven't seen it yet, but I, all I hear is people talking about it. And it's very, very powerful. But what we want to talk about today is the fact that he is risen, that Christ is risen. That's what we're going to talk about today. You know, you, I, I, I talk to people, you know, you have, and well, you know, there are some people who are like powerful speakers and they can, you know, keep you spellbound, you know. And then there's the rest of us who just slog away week after week to just try to stay faithful to what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says. And, uh, you know, you feel like, you know, on a day like today, you feel like you have to have something so profound to say. Something that would be life-changing. You know, you, you have people who come on, a, on, on Easter and say, well, you've got to say something that is going to shake me up. You know, but I, I don't have anything like that. All I have is the truth of what the Bible says. That's all I have. That's all I can give to you. And so I want to say this to you today is let the truth be the truth and let the Bible speak for itself. So let's open the Bible, if you will, if you have one there. If not, you can just listen along. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, in verse 21 through 24, we're going to read about this. Peter is preaching. Peter's life is radically changed, and this is after the resurrection. Whereas Peter, you remember, before the resurrection and what his life was like, and he, was, he ran, didn't he? He denied the Lord, first of all, and then he ran. And, and, then, and then, but the resurrection happened, and Peter's life is completely turned around. Jesus restores him completely. And now, and now nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop Peter from speaking the truth, not even when they would martyr him for his faith. Nothing would stop him from speaking about Jesus the Savior. Let's read these verses Starting in verse 21, he says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's quoting from Joel in that verse there. In verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. And this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we, we talk about this, as we look at these words, Lord, they would find a place in our minds and in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Starting in verse 21, and it's incredible. He starts off and says here, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and the first point I want to make today is that what, what does it take to be saved? Again, this is all in the context of what has just happened. 
that Jesus died on the cross, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus rose from the dead. And so he's talking here, and he's speaking to these people, and he, he quotes from Joel, and he, and he quotes this verse, and he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, so the question is, what does it take to be saved? Does it take you going to church? How about getting baptized? you got to be baptized. If you've been baptized, I've see, I hear it. I, 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 I have to say I'm sorry that, that this happens. You go to a, a funeral and they say, so-and-so was baptized and therefore he's in heaven or she's in heaven. What happens if you don't get baptized? Are you lost? You're, you have no chance. You have no hope. Or maybe it's giving money. We're going to take an offering right now and just see if you can get into heaven. Maybe it's a list of different sacraments. You need to go through these certain things, these certain things. If you fulfill this and this and this and this, and there's a list of about, I don't know how many, you know, some people have short lists, some people have long lists, but if you do these certain things, then you're going to be okay. You'll be saved. You're safe. I think the most common, though, is you've got to be a good person, right? Well, are you, are you going to go to heaven? Well, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? What do they say? Well, I've, I'm a pretty good person. I've lived a pretty good life. In other words, there's this, there's this uh, cosmic scale, right? That if your good things outweigh your bad things, and there's, I don't think there's anybody who says they've never done anything bad, anything wrong, right? Most people will at least admit to, you know, cheating in the third grade or something like that, right? Most everybody will admit, I've done something wrong in my life. I lied to my parents or, you know, I cheated on my taxes or, you know, on the way to church this morning, I was doing like 75 in a 25. I didn't want to be late because then I might not be able to go to heaven if I'm late for church, right? That's going to be a problem, right? And so there's not many will say, you know, I never did anything wrong, but, but it's this idea of, you know, if you, you, I do a lot of good things, you know, and they certainly outweigh the bad things, so I'm certain that I'm going to get there. Not knowing that the standard is complete perfection. Complete perfection. That's the standard that you have to pass to get into heaven. Now, how many of you here meet that standard? No, I'm just giving you an example. I'm not saying me. Raise your hand. Not many of us, not any of us are going to get there. So what does he say here? And Peter's, Peter's preaching it, and he says that everyone who what? Calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. So that is what's going to get you in. Not anything else. Nothing else. He doesn't say and calls on the name of the Lord, and does this and this and this. He says, if you call on the name of Jesus. Not, but, but, you know, it's not just that you chant the name Jesus, right? You call on the name of Jesus because of what he did, and this is the context. Because he died for your sin. He lived the perfect life. He, he alone met that perfect standard. He alone, no one else has. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The second thing here and found in verse 22, 
He says this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. The second thing that happened as they were speaking to them there is that they couldn't deny what Jesus had done. They couldn't deny who he was. The fact that he came in and did miraculous things, they were completely blown away when he healed the man in John chapter 9 who was born blind. No one else has ever done this, they said. How could this be? Because only God could do something like that. They couldn't deny what Jesus had done. Incredible things that he had done. They, they looked at him and said, isn't this the guy from, from Nazareth? Isn't you know, he Joseph's son? Like, how could this possibly be? They were confused. They were conflicted about this. Like, we know who that, that guy is. We saw him, you know. But look what he did. His life was changed. We saw that in the trailer where, where uh, Lee Strobel, he saw a change in, the, in, in his wife's life. People's lives were healed. People's bodies were healed. Their lives were changed forever. They could not change themselves. This is the story. This is why we talk about, you know, giving our story and Matt so uh, aptly gave his part of his story. If you want to hear more, see him after. It's a powerful thing, though. They couldn't deny what Jesus had done. What, what, what is it like when you see somebody who you see Jesus working in their lives. You've seen their lives change. That's what drew me to Christ. I knew there was a friend of mine. He was a, a neighborhood friend. He was a little bit older, but he kind of was helping us out because we were all getting in trouble, all of us. But he was kind of helping us out, you know, trying to be a big brother kind of thing. But, but he got to the point where his marriage was just about destroyed. And they turned to Jesus Christ and their marriage was rescued and saved. I saw something happen in his life. He was, he was a different person. The next thing here found in verse 23, look what it says there. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He says that he was handed over to you. Well, that's kind of a different picture than what you could, you could, you could think as if you were one of the, the, the rigid, religious leaders of the day. They thought they were taking hold of him, right? We're going to stop him. We're going we're to take this life. This guy's creating problems for us. So we're going to get rid of him. We're going we're to get him out of the way. That's, that's what they thought, right? That's really what they thought. We're just going to take care of it. That's what they thought. But what does it say here? What did Peter say? What did, what did Jesus say himself? He said, no one takes my life from me, but I give it. You see, the Father had this love for us. He says that the man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. He was handed over to them by the hand of God. He gave his life. We need to know that. We need to know that, that Jesus gave his life for us. It wasn't taken from him. 
They didn't take his life. He gave his life to you and to me. That's important. Because what does that tell us? It tells us he, he had a plan and he loved us. He did it because he loved us. We can look at the, the cross and the, the, the brut, brutality of it all and, and how difficult, how horrendous it was and, and, and you know, focus on that. And, and, but but he, he did that willingly for you and for me. The next thing we notice here, he says it was by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. In other words, this was the plan of God from eternity, from creation, the cross, the death. The fact that he was nailed to the cross. Nailing him to the cross, it says there, verse 23. We looked at that on Friday, didn't we? Psalm 22, where it was prophesied, you know, 1,000 years before. Isaiah 52 and 53, 700 plus years. It was prophesied that this is what would happen to this Messiah. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. they pierced my hands and feet. I looked that word up in the Strong's Concordance and this word for pierced, and it's literally a, it literally means a sense of violence. They, they, they perpetrated this sense of violence to my hands and my feet. They use the word as well for the bite of a lion. The, you know, the big giant teeth of a lion, like... And that's the kind of thing they... they they took this sense of violence when they nailed his hands, his feet, for you and for me. Notice the last part of that verse 23 says, You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. So I have to ask the question, well, who did put Jesus to death? Oops, yeah, there we go. You know that guy? Who put Jesus to death? He says, you, to the leaders there, with the help of wicked men. And that really kind of includes all of us, I think. Who put him to death? It was you, it was me. This is what Billy Graham says. It was not the people or the Roman soldiers who put Jesus on the cross. It was your sins and my sins that made it necessary for him to volunteer his death. It was you and me. You know, if we, do, if we can't see that, if it was just those people over there, we need to understand it for ourselves. It was my sin that put him on the cross. If, if we can't see that, we're never going to appreciate it. We're never going to apply it to ourselves. If we don't see that it was me, if you don't see that it was you that put him up there, how can it ever be personal? How can we ever have this personal relationship that we talk about so often? He took death for us says it over and over, in our place. Why? That we might be rescued. Why? That, that we might be saved. Why? Because he loved us. And he said on the cross, he said, it is finished. And the words mean paid in full. Paid in full. Verse 24 says that God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God gave his son to die, to take the judgment. But he didn't stay in the tomb, like I said earlier. He wasn't just a man, and you can go find his grave today. 
He conquered death. He came up out of the tomb. You see, our two worst enemies, we have a lot of enemies. Do you have any enemies in your life by any, by any chance? Anybody got any enemies? If you don't answer me, you're going to have a, another enemy. Please say something. We all have enemies, but, but the two worst enemies, the two biggest enemies that you and I have as human beings are sin and death. Sin and death. Sin is our enemy, and death is our worst enemy. The, the Bible calls it our last enemy. The last enemy to be conquered is death. And so we have these two enemies, but on the cross and on the resurrection, we see that Jesus took care of these two, the very worst enemies that you and I have. He died for sin, He paid for sin, and then He rose from the dead, defeating and conquering death. It's incredible what He says there, that, that He was... It, the Father raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony, the agony of death. The agony of death. Think about that for a moment. The agony of death. By the way, we're all going to face death. It's a one out of one. But he, t- he calls it the agony of death. And, I, and, and you have to think about those words. There's, there's something about death that's, that's got an agony about it. And what is that agony? What is it that he's talking about? It's this separation. What hurts so much when you lose somebody that you love? It's that you're separated from them. You're not going to hear their voice anymore. And you try and you, you listen and you hear their voice in your head. For a certain amount of time, right, I, I lost my brother. He was 31 years old. And he had a very unique voice, and I could hear his voice. But after a while, I, I couldn't hear his voice anymore. I, I, can't, I can't picture what his voice is like. It's this separation that we're, that we're no longer able to be with them. There's an agony about it, isn't there? Some of you know you've lost someone close recently. But the worst agony, and we looked at this in Psalm 22, the worst agony was when Jesus was separated from his Father. And that's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he did that for you and for me. But then it says that he was, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him as I said earlier, the religious leaders thought if they just got rid of Jesus, then their good thing would still be good. You see, they had a lot of power. They had a lot of uh, influence. They had a lot of resources and money, and they would you know, kind of do it all for themselves. But Jesus kind of came along and stirred things up, and he said, wait a minute. What did he say to them? He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. Jesus said some pretty radical stuff. And when he, when he approached those religious people, he wasn't afraid to just tell them the way it was. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs, like, you know, you got, you're, you know, you're full of dead men's bones. You look like you're alive on the outside, but you're like full of corruption and ugliness and wickedness inside. Just because you wear a robe doesn't mean anything. Why? Because he knew that he was the resurrection and the life. It was impossible, he says, Peter says, preaching to the crowd that day. He says it was impossible 
for death to keep its hold on him. That, that statement is true of nobody else. No one else can that be said of. The hold was broken. You see, he was the only one. It proved who he was. It proved the power that he had. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Why? A whole bunch of reasons, really, but the fact that the, the debt was paid, so death could no longer hold him. The fact that he was God, death could not hold him. It was impossible. The fact, as I said, he was the resurrection and the life. He himself was the resurrection and the life. We're not going to read it today, but he goes on, Peter goes on there and he quotes from Psalm 16 that David wrote some 1,000 years earlier that, about the Messiah that he would come. But, but jump down to verse 27, if you would, please. He says, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You will not abandon me to the grave or let your Holy One see decay. This prophecy was literally fulfilled, written 1,000 years previous. He rose from the dead. He did not see decay. He was not abandoned. It was impossible for him to be kept. Look at verse 31 and, and 32. Seeing what was ahead, David, this is he speaking about, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. And God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. They had seen him. They were eyewitnesses of the fact. So you're sitting here today and we're talking, you say, well, I'm just talking about something that I don't understand, that I don't believe, that I don't see for myself. That movie that we talked about uh, earlier that we saw the trailer for, he, he, was a, he was a true skeptic. But if you look and, and, and look, at, look for people who were true skeptics, true atheists or agnostics, who went and actually checked out the evidence for Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, checked out the evidence, they went and looked at it, and most of them went and looked at it to disprove the faith. And many of them end up giving their lives to Jesus Christ. Is that incredible? Let me read to you about one Harvard law professor. His name was Simon Greenleaf. Have any of you ever heard of him? You've seen the name on different places. But he was a professor of law at Harvard. He was a celebrated legal mind, it says here. He wrote a book called The Treatise on the Law of Evidence. And this particular book is still considered uh, an incredible book on the authority of evidence in law, in legal procedure. But he was an atheist. He was a prof professed atheist, it says. And he says, while teaching law at Harvard... He stated to his class that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a legend. And this was obvious for him, given that miracles were impossible. Didn't Peter talk about miracles? 
However, a few of his students responded to his skepticism, challenged him to apply his rules of evidence, again, that was his field, to the historical resurrection evidence. And Green Life eventually accepted their challenge and set out to prove that the resurrection of Jesus was false. That's what his, his whole goal was. I'm going I'm to put this to rest once and for all, right? And this is no dummy, right? Incredible mind. It says, however, during the course of his examination into the historical evidence, he found his atheism to be challenged on many fronts. And a primary concern to him was his, abil- his inability to explain away the dramatic change in Jesus' dis- disciples' disposition and their subsequent willingness to suffer and die for their testimony. He looked at the facts, he looked at the lies, he looked at history. He went on, it says later, he says, he went on to boldly claim that according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, he says there's more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. This is a guy who studied evidence and it changed his life. It changed his life. He became one of the first, uh, uh, in our age anyways, uh, uh, Christian apologists. Someone else said this about this subject. said, did the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ actually occur? If not, billions of people have been deceived. If so, Jesus proved he was God himself when he came to sacrifice his life for our sins as prophesied. prophesied. And as he claimed, which arguably means the resurrection was the most important event in history. When we look at this whole thing about the death and the resurrection, nothing in all of history compares to what it really means for the human race. Then he talks about this man, Lee Strobel, who was in the the movie, he says he was a Yale law-trained crime investigator for the Chicago Tribune. He went to school at Yale, right? One of the schools, one of the Ivy League schools that were, that, that you know, he, he studied law there. He studied about investigation, about evidence, the th- same kinds of things that, that Simon Greenleaf did. And he set out also to disprove the resurrection by interviewing the leading experts from both sides. He was going to do this right, so he went and interviewed all these people. And then it says, he thereupon wrote the case for Christ, and he became a pastor. He looked at the evidence and gave his life to Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about here today. Have you looked at the evidence? Have you studied this? Have you asked yourself about this? Well, how does this apply to me? Where where does it hit me? I want to look at a few passages as we close. Let's first of all turn ahead two books to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then we're going to end up in the book in between in in the book of Romans. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, he says this, Now, brothers, 
I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel or by this good news, you are saved. If you, her- if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. In verse 3, he sums it all up. He said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. According to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day. According to the Scriptures, it was all prophesied, planned ahead, by the foreknowledge and the plan and the purpose, the set purpose of God. In verse 5, he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. The eyewitnesses were there. Look at what happened. Their lives were completely changed. This Peter who, who you know, was, was the first to run, now he's willing to speak up no matter what. Because why? Because he saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. By this gospel, by this news, you are saved. Not by all those other things that I talked about. Let's turn back to Romans now. Romans chapter 8. Excuse me, Romans chapter 10. In verse 8. As we wrap this up, Romans chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? That the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. That's an incredible verse. You know, he's talking about that. You know, he says before that, you know, do you have to go up to heaven and bring Jesus down? Or you have to go down to the deep and bring him up? No. He says the word of faith is right there. Jesus is as close as your mouth and as close as your heart. And, 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 and all you need to do is reach out to him. Verse 9, he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. You see, there's something about what happens in our hearts that we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. It's It's something inside, but it's also something that comes out. Jesus is Lord. I've surrendered to him. I've I've bowed my knee before him. Jesus says you'll be saved. And finally, the last verse there, jump down to verse 13. For everyone who calls on on the name of the Lord will be saved. Didn't we start with that verse? We did. Peter using that verse on the day of Pentecost when he was preaching, and now Paul using it in in this book of Romans, which kind of lays out in, uh, you know, so much depth what salvation is all based on. But he sums it all up again here. Believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Confessing with your mouth and accepting Him as your Lord, as your Savior. He says there again, where we began, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So my simple question to you today is, is have you? That's the question, isn't it? I'm thinking about 
about Easter and, you know, the churches all through our state. And, and as we come to this each and every year, we come to celebrate the cross and the resurrection. And I'm thinking, you know what, this is a time when, when this truth is brought out again and, and we're challenged again. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him as your Savior? You saw that you are a sinner, that you need to be saved. And I think in churches all across this state and, and, and all across the country, really, that this message is going out and, and people are being challenged to put their faith in Jesus. He's not way out there. He's right here. He's right in front of you. He's right there. Have you called on his name? Let's pray together, shall we? Our Lord and Savior Jesus, we thank you for what you did for us. And right now we call upon your name. And maybe, maybe we have never been saved. We have never surrendered. We have never bowed our knee and, and confessed the name of Jesus. And we come and we, we call out now on this Easter Sunday of 2017 and say, Jesus, I call on your name today to save me. I'm lost. I have no hope. I pray, I beg you to save me, a sinner. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Lord, I pray for each one of us as we, many of us have, have done that. We have surrendered and we have done what we needed to do, which is simply surrender to the cross and to the resurrection and trust you. I pray that we could live for you as well. Help us to live for you like Peter did, like these other disciples who, who trusted you so much that they, that they, when death came and faced them, they were willing to, to, to give their lives for the Savior who gave his life for them. Father, I pray you give us the boldness to to let the world know, those people around us know that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And no one gets to heaven, no one comes to the Father except through Him. Father, we need boldness. We're just frail, weak human beings. We need that boldness by Your Holy Spirit. Give us that boldness, Lord, we pray. Father, thank You for this family. Thank You for this day we celebrate together, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and sing. We got another new song for you today.